Exodus 33, Titus chapter 1. We've been in a series dealing with leadership, dealing with the qualifications of elders. Because of my sickness this past week, I haven't prepared a new sermon, but I just so happen to have a sermon on the very next characteristic of Titus chapter 1, in verse 8, as we're going to see in a moment, which is going to fit very nicely into our series. So Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through 9, Paul said to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. How many ills would be dealt with if the Church of Jesus Christ would hold up God's own standard for leadership and actually abide by it? If we would look for men who actually met biblical qualifications and then ensured that there is a level of accountability that uh, kept those men qualified as they held the office. That's our desire and our conviction at Calvary Baptist Church that we have qualified leadership and that we produce such men within the church. And so in that vein, we have both been seeking to train up men who have a desire for eldership, but also to train the congregation to know who to look for. Last week, we considered hospitality. This week, we see in verse 8, it says a qualified elder must not only be hospitable, but a lover of good. A lover of good. That's our focus this morning. What do we mean by good? How was your day? Pretty good. Had a good dinner. Had a good day. He's a good guy. Bought a new car. Is it any good? Good. Good's not great. Kind of less than great. Just good. What does good mean? It's clear that the way in which we use the word good falls short of what's far short, actually, as we're going to see, of how the Bible uses the term good or goodness. We're going to look at a remarkable passage of Scripture that lays out for us a definition of the not only good or goodness, but the goodness of God, which is going to help us understand what it means then for all of us to be lovers of good. Exodus chapter 33. And this text follows a very sad episode in Israel's history. Moses has gone up on the Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God, and the Israelites in Moses' absence have decided to make an idol and to return to their pagan worship. In response to this, God's wrath is kindled against the unfaithfulness of his people, and he decides to consume them in his wrath. Yet Moses intercedes for Israel. Through Moses' intercession, God turns away his wrath. However, God tells his people, tells Moses to tell his people that he would not go with them into the promised land. Instead, an angel would lead them, lest he consume them on the way because of their continual rebellion. Well, in the aftermath of those events, Moses is obviously understandably a little bit despondent, discouraged. And he's really desiring some assurances from God. And so in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, he says to the Lord, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. 
I need some assurance. I need a tangible experience of your glory. Reveal yourself to me more clearly than you've ever revealed yourself to me before. Give me the assurances, the assurance that the promises that you're giving me are secure. But look at how the Lord responds to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 19. And the Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim it before you, or and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not, uh, shall not be seen. So Moses asked, Lord, show me your glory. The Lord says, I will show you my glory, uh, not a direct glimpse of that glory, but kind of the afterglow of his glory. But what he says is, I will make my goodness to pass before you. God's glory could be seen as synonymous with God's goodness. In passing by Moses in this glorious revelation, the Lord also says that in order to show Moses his glory and his goodness, he will proclaim his name. That is, he will proclaim the nature of his own character. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 5 says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is the Lord himself proclaiming his own nature and his own character, which can be summarized by simply referring to it as his name. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, this is a wonderful passage to memorize, by the way. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. What a revelation. Although Moses was not permitted to see God in the fullness of his glory, he was given exactly the revelation that he needed in that moment. Having just experienced the trauma of Israel's rebellion, and nearly the catastrophic uh, uh, consequences of God's wrath, and the disappointment of God saying that he's not going to go with them into the promised land, Moses now has a desperate need. But God knows Moses' need better than Moses knows Moses' need, and that's true of us here this morning as well. God knows our need more than we know our own needs. Whereas Moses desires some incredible religious experience, show me your glory, God instead proclaims his goodness to Moses, reassuring him of his character. The Lord is merciful, and he's gracious, and he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. In all of that, God was communicating to Moses the aspects of his own character, the exercise of which were perfectly suited and fitted for the needs of Moses and Israel. What Moses needed was a revelation or a reminder of the goodness of God. That may be true of us here this morning as well. There may be some who feel like they need some religious experience. Lord, just reveal something to me. Just do something. Oftentimes when we feel that we're in need of such an experience, what we really need is simply a reminder of who God is. 
a reminder of his goodness, of his character. God's goodness is his propensity to exercise his divine perfections on behalf of his creatures in order to bestow upon them blessings which are perfectly fitted to their need. God's goodness is his propensity to bless those who are in need of mercy with mercy, to bless those who are in need of grace with grace, to bless those who are in need of patience with patience. His goodness is his propensity to exercise his covenant love and forgiveness and justice towards those who are in the desperate need of the same. It's this understanding of the goodness of God that often led the psalmist to burst out in praise. Psalm 107, verse 1 through 9 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Some wandered in the desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. This has been a theme of God's people, rejoicing in the goodness of God, praising him, thanking him for his goodness, which looks like what? Emphasizing his character and how he exercises all of his uh, character perfections for the benefit of his people. In the positive, we could say his goodness is the exercise of his divine perfections on the behalf of his creation in order to answer their need and bestow his blessings upon them. In the negative, we could say that God in his goodness is never harsh, and he's never cruel, and he's never unkind or unjust towards his creatures. Instead, he's always generous, always loving, and always uh, disposed to bring blessing. He is good by his very nature, which means he always does good. And here's an encouragement for all of us. When we don't know why things are happening the way they're happening, this is related to the book of Habakkuk, by the way, Uh, when we don't understand how the events all around us can be reconciled with the character of God, when we're confused about how to put it all together, one thing we can always assure ourselves of is that God always acts in consistency with his character. Know who God is, that he is loving and he's gracious and he's merciful and he's forgiving and so on. And then understand that he never acts in a way which violates any of his character qualities and then just trust. Then just trust. All those created by God and for God and in the image of God can be assured that every one of his attributes, when exercised on our behalf, always results in blessings. Not only this, but God by his very nature is disposed to exercise those attributes on our behalf in order to pour out his blessings upon us. This is, there is a sense in which that's true for all of creation. That's true. God is good through common grace. You see that in Psalm 104. We won't read it for the sake of time. But in Acts 14, Paul makes this point. Speaking to those idol worshipers in Lystra, he says, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet He did not leave Himself without witness. And what was the witness that He left for all nations? For He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. There is a sense in which God is, yes, the creator of all things, and so He exercises His goodness to all, and that in and of itself should be a testimony of His existence. But his provision goes far beyond just food and sunlight. Psalm 145 verse 3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Now, does this sound familiar? The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Question, do you ever take the time to meditate upon the goodness of God? Are you so caught up with life and circumstances and the stresses of the day, the burdens all around you, that you never take time to think about who God is? It's interesting that in the New Testament, the mature, the one who's referred to as a father in the faith, with that father-like mature faith is described as this way, as one who simply knows God. That's that maturity that takes that time to meditate upon who God is, His character qualities, and how He exercises them upon our behalf. And so the psalmist can say that I meditate upon your goodness. He is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And then to realize that He exercises all of that on our behalf all the time. God shows His goodness through common grace, yes. To the extent that even the unbeliever experiences the blessings of God's creation, he's benefiting from God's common grace, His goodness. This grace, Paul says in Lystra, should serve as a witness not only to the existence of God, but to the fact, something about His character, He's good. Kevin DeYoung said it this way, Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. Food is good, marriage is good, friendship is good, health is good, peace is good, prosperity is good, work is good, recreation is good, rest is good. It's all good. Why? Because God is good. He's good to His creation. So whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, this morning you have benefited from the goodness of God. He's provided for you. He's provided for you life and love and happiness, a measure of health and vitality. He's given you air to breathe and food to eat. Although God's goodness can clearly be seen in the blessings He bestows upon all creation, however, there's a special sense in which He exercises His goodness to those who belong to Him covenantally, to believers. What's the ultimate expression of God's goodness? Clearly, the ultimate expression of God's goodness is not sun and rain and life and laughter, but it's the provision of grace and mercy and forgiveness through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Paul tells Titus to be sure to proclaim this to the churches in Crete. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Is that your testimony this morning? Verse 4. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that same character that we see God proclaiming to Moses on the mountain, we see exercised to his absolute perfection and fullness, where? On the cross. While we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, God's goodness appeared. In verse 8, look what the consequence of this should be. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things, Paul says to Titus, so that, this is the consequence then, so that those who have believed, is that you this morning? Those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. There's real implication here. There's practical application because God is good, because he is disposed to exercise all of his perfections on behalf of his creatures. So then because he is good and has shown the ultimate expression of his goodness in the cross through Jesus Christ, now those who have been saved by Jesus should then devote their lives to goodness, to good works. These things, he says, are excellent and profitable for people. We should devote ourselves to a lifestyle which reflects the goodness of God. So then is it surprising that when we think about elders who are to be exemplary for all believers, that one of the requirements is they are to be, Titus chapter 1, verse 8, lovers of good, lovers of good. God's goodness to us should lead us to love and to do that which is good. John said in 3 John 11, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Does it make a little bit more sense now that when you see that word good? I mean, because when we read it, it seems kind of like a light word. Not, not a whole lot of depth to that, to that word good. But whoever does good is from God. Well, we understand that's a weighty term. The pastor, and by implication every believer, should love that which is good, which is everything which is consistent with expressions of God's perfect character. A lover of good loves mercy. A lover of good loves grace. A lover of good loves patience and loves forgiveness and loves justice and loves righteousness. A lover of good loves purity. A lover of good loves loveliness and loves everything else that's worthy of praise. That's Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, what does he say? Think about these things. Again, we're back to that idea of meditating upon goodness. The mind and heart of the pastor, and by implication, every believer, should be set upon all that is good. How do we say this in the negative? The Christian should not value or pursue or surround himself things which are untrue or dishonorable or impure or unlovely or uncommendable or unworthy of praise. So let's just make this really practical. Are you loving what is good? Do you love what is good with your eyes? Or do you place before your eyes things that are impure, ungodly? unworthy of praise and unworthy of commendation. Do you love good? 
Are you loving what is good with your ears? You're building yourself up in the faith through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You're exposing yourself to the ministry of the Word through preaching and teaching and podcasts and so on, feeding yourself through the week, listening to things that are true and honorable. Or are you exposing yourself to things which are false, obscene, or worthless, vain? Are you loving what is good with your speech? Are you speaking words that are upbuilding and not destructive? Are you speaking things that are profane or unhelpful or divisive? Or are you seeking to minister grace to the ears of all those who hear you? Are you loving what is good? Are you loving what is good with your associations? Are you associating with others who love what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise? And I think probably we could just make that even a little bit more practical and, and make maybe a direct appeal to young people, especially those of you who may have a lot of associations outside the church and without, outside of Christianity. And uh, you know what? Uh, we're never to be entirely secluded from the culture in that uh, you ought to have connections with unbelievers. Uh, Paul said that if we we're going to you know, not associate with those who are unbelievers, we would have to go out of the world, and that's not God's design. God's design, God's design is not for us to buy up land and to build a compound and to have uh, you know, your, own, uh, your own banks and your own businesses and your own school system and uh, have the compound over there. That sounds a lot like a cult. Uh, that's not God's design. Uh, God's design for us is to be what? In the midst of. And so we're lights in the midst of darkness. We're salt in the midst of decay. And that's God's design for the church is always to be a godly minority in the midst of a godless majority. That's his design. That's what we are made for. Uh, and we're to impact the culture that way. How, what does that mean? It means you're going to be rubbing shoulders with unbelievers all the time, right? And, and, and it ought to be that way because they need to be exposed to light. They need to be exposed to salt. And uh, so we're not those who sequester ourselves away. We're not building a monastery. We're not building a compound, right? Uh, that being said, Sometimes we need to check our associations to ensure that we are the influencers and not the influenced. And so this morning, are you loving what is good by virtue of your associations? Would it be hard to tell by your friendships that you love and value what is good? These are important questions because to genuinely love what is good, we must also hate what is evil. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, what does that, uh, what does that motivate us to do? Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. People who love God and are zealous for good works are those who have, in response to the grace of God, renounced ungodliness and worldly passions. Not only have they renounced these things, but as believers, we should actually abhor that which is evil, according to Romans chapter 12, verse 9. To abhor something is to regard with extreme repugnance, hatred, or loathing. We ought to hate that which is evil, Right? Do you hate that which is evil? And let's balance this out. And this will be maybe a challenge for some of us. We shared a video uh, or, or recommended a video during our Habakkuk study. 
John Piper uh, answered a question about how to call out cultural sins appropriately. And one of the things he said in the video was, uh, as believers, we should not love talking about what we hate. We should not love talking about what we hate. And for some believers, it's like a hobby horse to sit up. uh, It's a very high hobby horse. Uh, It's a high horse, which is also a hobby horse. To sit up on the uh, high horse to judge the culture. Uh, thinking that as long as we can take the focus off of our own lives and maybe our own household here and focus upon the culture, we can feel very good about ourselves as we call out the wickedness of them. Yet, the Bible seems to put the emphasis for believers on making sure that judgment starts in the household of God. Making your own household in order before you would dare call out uh, the wickedness of the culture. And so, for some, and this is a, this is a, a, a serious warning. I don't know if you've ever met anybody like this before who seems to wear Christianity not like a personal faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, but they wear Christianity more like a cause to defend, a cause to defend more than a faith to live. And for them, they know the policy issues, uh, they know the value issues, and they'll go to battle. They'll go to battle online, especially. They'll go to battle fighting over these causes where you look at their lives and say, but where's the genuine faith? Where's the real love for Christ? Because it seems as if you have a greater hatred towards evil than you do a love for good. Alexander uh, Alexander McLaren said this. He said, We often see men very earnest and entirely sincere in their detestation of meanness and wickedness, but very tepid in their appreciation of goodness. To hate is unfortunately more congenial in ordinary... uh, with ordinary characters than to love. And it's more facile to look down on badness than to look up at goodness. It's easy to hate. To hate is actually sometimes just uh, fuels the passions of our own flesh. We can feel justified in feelings of hatred when we're doing it in the name of righteous indignation. There is a place, obviously, we must abhor that which is evil, We ought to have an extreme repugnance, a hatred or loathing, but that should look more like a grieving of a soul which loves holiness than the inflaming of a passionate hatred towards those people. Hatred and opposition are natural, again, to our sinful nature. Easy to rail against things that are evil or unjust or immoral while never really possessing a genuine love for what is good. In a perverse way, then, we can use a campaign against perceived evil as a vent for our flesh while not actually having any personal love or devotion to what is good. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that uh, we must love good and ignore evil. All I'm saying is ensure that the repugnance or the abhorrence of evil is driven from a heart which first and foremost loves goodness and loves holiness. And then ensure that any opposition towards this is tempered, tempered by the character of Christ. So Paul says in Romans, abhor that which is evil, hold fast to that which is good. Both of those are essential for Christian character. Those are two sides of the same coin. That's that balance. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So, again, do you love what is good? That which is consistent with and flows from the holy character of God. With that love for good, do you also possess an abhorrence of evil? If others were, examined, were to examine your life in my life, 
when they hear our words and watch our actions and meet our friends and perceive our priorities and watch our entertainment and listen to our music and then conclude that we love what is good and abhor that which is evil? Or would they be confused by a host of inconsistencies? And what do you find joy? What brings you happiness? What do you find valuable? What type of people do you enjoy spending time with? What do you find entertaining? What type of conversations do you find fulfilling? Are you continually cultivating a taste for good? Good music and good teaching and good books. Cultivating positive, encouraging friendships. Are you continually growing away from an appreciation for that which is worldly? Sanctification, that increasing holiness and being increasingly set apart means that I have a growing distaste for the wickedness of the culture and a greater appetite for the things of the Lord. So, a love of good includes an abhorrence of evil, yes. Quick to say, a love for good also includes an innocence towards that which is evil. Romans 16, 19 says, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. There is a sanctified naivete sometimes. We don't need to be in the gutter knowing everything that the culture is doing. There's some of those things that are actually a shame for us to speak of. Don't put your head in the sand. Know what the culture is doing. Yes. Know what Satan is up to. Yes. I mean, be wise when it comes to uh, uh, that which is uh, uh, good. Innocent towards that is evil in the sense of your own purity. Be alert to the culture, but don't be immersed in the culture. So sometimes we don't have to Google that thing. Sometimes we don't have to keep scrolling. Sometimes we don't need to keep up in the latest Hollywood gossip. Sometimes we don't need to know the dirty details of what the culture is doing, how they're the latest ways they're exercising their depravity. There's a balance here. Know what's going on with the culture, but protect your own purity. Don't desensitize yourself to evil. Our continual exposure to that which is good should create in us a deep sensitivity to evil, a deep sensitivity to evil which is aggrieved by wickedness. So, in conclusion, a potential potential pastor is one who loves good. As an example to all believers, he values that which is good and enjoys what is good. He should think on what is good. He should promote what is good. He should meditate upon what is good. He should practice what is good. He should associate with those who are good, and he should praise what is good. With that, also a healthy abhorrence of evil. Not an abhorrence which is continually stoked because he's often exposing himself to the evil of the culture. Understand the 24-hour news cycle is outrageous for a reason because they want to keep you engaged. Understand that there's also a conservative and Christian media empire out there as well who wants to keep you engaged by continually stoking the flames of your outrage. Along with that abhorrence of evil, he should also possess an innocence towards evil. Evil offends, evil grieves, evil still shocks. Why? Because it's such a contrast to the good with which he's constantly exposing himself. The good books and the good music and the good people and the good thoughts and the good conversation. Those things which he genuinely loves. So in conclusion, again, second conclusion, how do we cultivate a love for what is good? Well, Paul said to Titus again in Titus chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. 
This sounds like it takes effort. Be careful to devote yourselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. How do you cultivate a love for good and therefore a lifestyle of good? 2 Timothy 2. Paul says to Timothy, after listing some men who have apostatized from the faith, he says, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, that everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Listen, especially if you're a young man. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from that which is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There's some marching orders there. There's a mandate there. Paul says, in any house, you got, you know, you got the, the chamber pot. Aren't you thankful we don't have chamber pots anymore? Some of you don't even know what that is. If you don't know what it is, you don't want to know what it is. But let's just say it's not an honorable vessel. But then you might have the gold and you might have the silver. And uh, some are for honorable use and some for, are dishonorable. That's the analogy he's using. And Paul says, you want to be that vessel for honorable use. You want to be used of the Lord. Set apart for holy use. Set apart to be used of God for every good work. And so how does that happen? Well, flee. Flee that which is not good. Flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What's the primary means which God gives us to enable us to flee passions and cleanse ourselves and pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace and purity so that we can be used for every good work? 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. For what purpose? That the man of God may be complete. Equipped for every good work. So, if you are to be a lover of good, you must first love God. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, who is the perfect standard of goodness. You must use that uh, the means which God has given us in the Word of God to develop a love for that which is good. And you must be one who has received God's ultimate expression of goodness in the salvation provided through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, understand that God expressed his goodness in its perfection and its fulfillment upon the cross. God is merciful and he's gracious. Remember what he said to Moses? He's merciful and he's gracious and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love and he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Where did he do that to its greatest degree upon the cross? But he also said to Moses that he will by no means clear the guilty. Part of God's perfection is his justice. And he loves justice. And in his love for justice, he will ensure that all sin be judged. It's going to be judged one or two ways. Sin will be judged either by those who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It'll be paid by those individuals that they suffer the judgment of God themselves. Or the justice of God will be satisfied in that uh, those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His death upon the cross will be seen as the Lord, as the bearing of the just wrath of God upon the sins of those who place their faith in him. One way or the other, justice will be had. God is not only merciful and gracious and slow to anger, but he's also just. And so this morning, will you place your faith in Jesus Christ? 
He's the only Savior and He's the only Lord. The cross was the perfect expression of God's goodness towards you. You now have a responsibility to exercise your faith and to repent of your sin, trusting Jesus Christ and He alone as Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You that You love us and that You are disposed to exercise all of Your divine perfections on our behalf. We thank You that You know our needs greater than we know our own needs. I pray that You'll help us who are believers this morning to spend time meditating upon, thinking about who You are and about how all Your divine perfections are given to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us then to respond to your goodness by pursuing lives characterized by a love for good and a practice of that which is good as we pursue lives of good works. And then, Lord, we just pray for those this morning who are not yet Christians. We pray that they would sense their need for Jesus Christ, understanding that left to their own sin, they face your wrath and your own judgment. But placing faith in Jesus Christ, that wrath is turned away as he bears their judgment. Lord, we pray that you would save souls. We pray that you would convict us of areas in which we have not been loving that which is good, whether uh, a matter of omission, where we have not been giving ourselves to your word, not been giving ourselves to good fellowship, good acquaintances, filling our minds and hearts with good music, good teaching. Show us areas in which we have fallen short, where we're not working towards our best interest, but instead uh, direct us to that which is good. Convict us of areas where we have actively been pursuing that which is evil. We've been filling our minds, polluting our minds and our emotions and our passions with the evil things of the culture. Show us that. Help us through that progressive sanctification, having increasing love for good and an increasing abhorrence for that which is evil. He'll continue to cleanse us and purify us that way. Lord, we thank you for this and uh, remind us again of your goodness and help us to meditate upon it this week. We thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.